Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute. What can we do about early relapsing follicular lymphoma? Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty will discuss follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third line treatments, including some of the newer therapies. For example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and the CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies such as mosunutizab. In this episode, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Nostopil discuss follicular lymphoma and its treatment, particularly for those patients who progress within the first 24 months, the POD24. What is known about predictors of progression and what is the best path forward for these poor prognosis patients? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nastapil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. Well, great to have you back, uh, Loretta, to talk more about uh, follicular lymphoma. Let's spend some time now talking about uh, those patients with follicular lymphoma who have early progression of disease. Uh, tell me how, how you define that, uh, and what does that mean to you uh, when you hear about a patient with early progression? Yeah, so we just spent a lot of time talking about the fact that most patients with follicular lymphoma will have favorable outcomes, and, and it's absolutely appropriate to be concerned about what you're hearing, but also recognize that, that most people are going to have a normal life expectancy. But there is a caveat to that statement, and the caveat is that the observation that patients should progress within 24 months of frontline chemoimmunotherapy, and it's been validated now across different chemotherapy backbones, actually don't, or we don't anticipate they're going to have normal life expectancies and may actually face some of the most dismal outcomes we've seen in follicular lymphoma to date. So an observational cohort led by Carla Casulo, and I think you, Dr. Flowers, were also intimately involved in this, looked at patients diagnosed between 04 and 07 and were treated with frontline rituximab and mostly CHOP-based chemotherapy. The observation was that patients that progressed within 24 months of starting that therapy actually had a median overall survival of only about five years, whereas the other group of patients, which is about 80% of the population, had a life expectancy that was very similar to an age-sex-matched cohort that didn't have follicular lymphoma, which to me suggested that those patients do really well But the 20% who have an early progression event, that's the unmet need. We need to do a better job for those patients. I think the controversy, and this is where I want your opinion, lies in that a lot of those patients did not have uh, biopsies at progression to know whether or not it was still follicular driving that poor outcome or whether or not it was over-enriched with patients who had transformed to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. 
And the other controversy is we have no way of identifying who these folks are at the onset. We just have to wait for that event to occur. And we still don't really know what's the preferred approach. So what is, what is your impression of POD24 and flake lymphoma? Well, I, I think you really hit on some of the major challenges uh, that we have there. The study that you uh, alluded to, the National Lymphocare Study, was really a national uh, study of follicular uh, lymphoma patients with more than 2,700 patients. And so I think that gives us a great perspective on, on how uh, this uh, entity really does exist across the United States among patients with follicular lymphoma. We first discovered it uh, in clinical trials. And so even before uh, that date in 2004, we had seen that there were about 20% uh, of patients uh, who had early progression of disease uh, on clinical trials. Uh, and then we've seen this in other observational studies. And so there was a large observational study uh, that was done in the province of British Columbia, where Kiara Frima uh, looked at that population as well and also found that there were about 20% of patients who had early progression of disease. I think some of the challenges that we saw with the National Lymphocare study uh, is that it was a study that really spanned the early components of the rituximab uh, era, uh, where the kinds of chemoimmunotherapy regimens that you described were not used as part of frontline therapy. Um, regimens like uh, you described uh, with lunalidomide and rituximab really didn't exist uh, at that uh, time point. Uh, as, as regimens that were widely used for patients as a first-line uh, therapy. Uh, and so there are some questions that, that remain in terms of the modern era, uh, how relevant POD24 uh, really is. Um, particularly in that uh, study that I just mentioned uh, from British Columbia, uh, where we saw that bendamustine rituximab was the most commonly used uh, regimen that was not a regimen uh, also that was used in the, in the, the National Lymphocare Study. Uh, that although the, the group in British Columbia saw uh, that about 20% of those patients had early progression of disease following bendamustine rituximab, uh, they uh, routinely did biopsies for patients uh, in the province of British Columbia and found that the majority of those uh, patients, approximately 70% or more, uh, were patients who actually had transformation of their follicular lymphoma to a more aggressive uh, lymphoma, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So I think some of the things that remains of questions are, uh, is it really the bendamustine rituximab uh, and uh, that regimen being used in the upfront setting that when we see early progression that there are transformations? Would we see that same thing if our CHOP uh, was used uh, as the upfront regimen? And what about new regimens like lenalidomide uh, rituximab? Uh, what does early progression of disease look like for that patient population? Uh, but by and large, we do know that this is a group that when we do see this as an entity, is a group that's not going to do nearly as well as the general population of patients with follicular lymphoma. So when you see a patient uh, with early progression of disease, uh, what does that make you think of? Uh, does it depend upon the regimen that you uh, see that they had as their first line of therapy? And then how do you think through what do you do next? I think maybe one thing that I used to think is, well, maybe this is just a predictor of poor response to chemotherapy. Generally, we define this across populations of patients who had had chemoimmunotherapy-based treatment. So is this a predictive biomarker that if I change the mechanism of action, I get to alter the natural history of the disease? I don't think I have data that supports that observation or hypothesis. I think in general, what it is, is a clinical indicator that these patients have bad disease because they're progressing quickly through effective therapies. 
What I would love if there was a predictive biomarker that we could explore among these patients uh, in their biopsies or maybe even circulating tumor cells that then would inform the next step. I think we would make a giant leap forward, but we don't currently have that. What I try to do for these patients is enrich uh, participation on clinical trials where they may have access to novel therapies that are different than the standard of care options available to them with the expectation by just changing that variable, I might alter that sort of poor prognosis. But that to me is an unknown variable. One illustration of the fact that we don't really know what to do is uh, the SWOG study that's a randomized three-arm trial uh, has three very different approaches in terms of the options in that study. You've got a PI3 kinase inhibitor plus a CD20. You've got a chemotherapy backbone alternating between CHOP or bendamustine, depending on what they had frontline. And then you have a lenalidomide and obinutuzumab option as your third arm, which I think just reflects the fact that we don't really know what's the preferred approach. We'll kind of try everything and see what sticks. How do you approach these patients? I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, the need that we have for a predictive biomarker uh, in this setting. You uh, mentioned some of those uh, components uh, in your first remarks. Uh, this is a place where we uh, intensively need research focus to be able to identify these patients at diagnosis. That's not been for lack of trying. And so when we uh, think about uh, early progression of disease, there have been approaches uh, using uh, typical clinical risk factors uh, like the Follicular Lymphoma International Prognostic Index or the FLIPI score that you mentioned uh, in our first podcast. Uh, to try and predict those patients with early progression of disease. That helps to some degree. Uh, there also have been other uh, stratifying factors like biological factors like the M7 FLICB uh, using uh, the genomics uh, of the follicular lymphoma, so looking at the tumor uh, gene mutations. That also helps to some degree. Uh, we've also looked at the gene expression profiling of tumors, and that also helps to some degree, but none of them are really perfect uh, biomarkers for predicting that patient population. I think that is really what would help us uh, to know best what kinds of therapies among those ones uh, that you mentioned. Uh, I think what I, I think through the, the management uh, of these patients, I think a clinical trial is absolutely the kind of therapy that we should think about uh, for these patients. The SWOG trial that uh, you mentioned, I would, uh, was uh, very involved uh, with with the group. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for whatever reasons, we've had very difficulties with enrolling patients on that uh, clinical trial. Uh, but I commonly, outside of a clinical trial, think about the kinds of strategies that are, are looked at in that trial. And that uh, would mean either using uh, a chemoimmunotherapy-based uh, approach that is different uh, from the chemoimmunotherapy-based approach uh, that was used in the front line, uh, particularly uh, when bendamustine rituximab is commonly used and we have the concern uh, for early progression being associated with transformation. It's important to do a biopsy to make sure that transformation hasn't uh, occurred. When it has, our CHOP is clearly a regimen that you would think about uh, for the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in that transformation. And even when uh, there's no uh, clear uh, diagnosis of transformation, when that's something that's suspected, our CHOP is a regimen that I also think about in that setting. 
Uh, and then I also think about uh, some uh, of the more aggressive approaches that we've seen uh, for management of patients. Carla Casulo has had really two nice follow-up studies to the study that you mentioned from the National Lymphocare Study. Uh, another one uh, that I was involved with um, was one where she looked uh, across first-line clinical trials in patients with follicular lymphoma with thousands of patients and also found that progression of disease uh, early after chemoimmunotherapy was an important factor. But when we look at those patients who had first-line uh, single-agent rituximab, uh, early progression of disease was not uh, as bad of a prognostic uh, predictor. And the other thing that uh, she showed uh, in another study that was done with the Centers for International Bone Marrow Transplant Registries, or the CIBMTR, uh, was that early autologous stem cell transplantation uh, for patients who have early progression of disease is a factor uh, that uh, can lead to improved outcomes uh, compared to that National Lymphocare Study uh, data that, uh, that we both described. Now, that's not a randomized head-to-head -head trial, so it doesn't give us definitive evidence, uh, but autologous transplant is something at least to discuss with patients in this setting. So when we uh, think about uh, other clinical trial options or other uh, therapies outside of a trial, uh, what sort of uh, treatment options do you think about uh, for those early progressing uh, patients? Yeah, I generally follow the same logic that you just described. If there's any concern for transformation, I'm going to pursue an anthracycline-based chemoimmunotherapy option. If I'm not concerned about that, then I might pursue a lenalidomide in combination with rituximab options just based off of the AUGMENT study uh, in which you know, there were some patients in that study who had a POD24 status that tended to do as well as um, all the others who weren't in that same designation. I think one of the challenges with all the prospective studies when we're trying to tease them apart and understand is there, is there a preferred approach, the patients who make it onto trial and we retrospectively identify as being POD24 are different than those patients where we're enriching just a POD24 study. Uh, so that I think will be interesting to see how that, if we really address that when we see the results of those trials that are really aimed just at the POD24 population. I think CAR-T is something that I have a lot of optimism around, currently approved in the third line or later setting. So I'm not gonna do that in second line, though I will make a plug for a trial that's just launching, looking at AxiCell versus standard of care. And again, the standard of care options are the two things we've just highlighted, lenalidomide, rituximab, or rituximab in combination with chemotherapy as your standard of care arm versus CAR-T as, as your experimental arm. So I'm, I'm eager to see how that study plays out because I think we're all interested to see how CAR-T may uh, impact this poor risk finding. You mentioned the PI3 kinase inhibitor uh, umbrilisib as part uh, that was part of the, the SWOG trial. You know, thinking more broadly to those patients uh, who have had relapse of follicular lymphoma, uh, what, what's the current status of PI3 kinase inhibitors in the management of follicular lymphoma? My opinion is that the PI3 kinase inhibitors clearly work. I think the challenge has been the toxicity profile. Maybe it's based off of how we've been dosing, meaning most of the studies uh, that have been done previously that led to approval were daily inhibition of the PI3 kinase, either delta subunit or even copanlisib that inhibits um, more than one subunit. Maybe we see a signal there when you dose it intermittently um, once a week for three out of four weeks, you might have a slightly different safety profile. Uh, there are newer agents under exploration right now looking at one week on, three weeks off. And so I, I do think that the PI3 kinase inhibitors 
have not had the uptake that I may have anticipated just based off of the perceptions about toxicity. And I think that strategies that are underway currently looking at different dosing strategies might be one way to sort of um, revamp that approach. But currently in practice, I think they're mostly reserved for that third line or later space, uh, just based off of the toxicity profile and the need for continuous therapy. I think the other challenge we've obviously seen with the PI3 kinase inhibitors is those agents that showed uh, early promise, e either showing later trials that showed harm from the toxicity uh, or uh, not coming through uh, on the, the strategies that were needed uh, for full approval uh, that ultimately led to the withdrawal of, uh, of idiolysib uh, and umbralisib and duvalisib from the marketplace. And I think that uh, has left copanlisib as an option that's there for patients in the United States uh, and, and other countries, uh, but uh, I think it's limited uh, the use of uh, PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, in follicular lymphoma uh, for various reasons. Well, what have, you mentioned CAR T-cell therapy. What are other things that you see as promising therapies on the horizon for patients with early progression of disease? I think bispecific antibodies are the thing that we're all eagerly anticipating uh, approval, potentially even this calendar year, as single agent in the third line or later space. So there are studies underway now, particularly in that second line, not restricted again just to POD24 status, but would be attractive studies, in my opinion, if you had a patient who was relapsing early. Uh, so I'll highlight the Celestimo study. It's Mosentuzumab, which is CD20, CD3 bispecific in combination with lenalidomide. It is a randomized phase three, so the control arm is lenalidomide and rituxedab. But as I mentioned, I often will pursue that outside of a, a protocol for these patients, and so I'm optimistic about that study. We've seen other bispecifics, epcritimab, which is a subcutaneous administration. It's been combined with lenalidomide and rituximab in follicular lymphoma and the phase one or preliminary data looks to be quite promising. And I think the other agent that we'll talk about it in a later podcast is tazimetastat, which is an EZH2 inhibitor. The single agent activity, um, again, maybe not quite as uh, striking as some of these other therapies we've talked about, but I think it lends itself well to combination strategies because of the toxicity profile. And so can we further augment that microenvironment? Uh, so we have another trial underway right now, which is lenalidomide rituximab versus lenalidomide rituximab and tazimetastat. Again, another randomized phase three that would enroll uh, patients in this POD24 uh, situation. So all of these are sort of ideas or uh, options for these patients. Uh, but again, getting access right now may require participation on a trial. And you mentioned these bispecific antibodies. I think I, I get it. But when you say bispecific antibody, what are the things that are the targets of it? And how do these things, these agents work? Yeah, great question. So many of them are building off of the fact that rituximab or monoclonal CD20 antibodies really did change the treatment paradigm in this disease because it led to an improvement in overall survival. But those antibodies, essentially, you have um, targeting of CD20 on the surface of the immune system, and then you have the FC region uh, that will engage NK cells, et cetera. So these bispecific antibodies essentially will have two heads. Uh, you target CD20, and often, oftentimes they have a similar backbone to things like rituximab, and then you have another head that's going to engage CD3 on T cells. Some of them have a silent FC region, some do not. And so there are differences in terms of the construct, 
There's also differences in terms of the half-life and how we administer these agents. But essentially what we're doing is we're trying to harness the patient's own native T cells in that microenvironment where we can activate them and enhance efficacy uh, against the malignant B cells. Some of the interesting aspects is that across the board, cytokine release syndrome is one of the most common toxicities, which is sort of a proof of principle that we're activating these T cells that are then secreting cytokines. Uh, and so there are strategies, again, across the various constructs that are being employed to try and reduce the rates of grade two or higher cytokine release syndrome. So you'll have wider um, application and uptake uh, with lower concern for toxicity. Talked in the first uh, podcast about uh, some of the, you know, limited toxicities we see oftentimes with some of the first line therapies uh, for patients with follicular lymphoma with agents like rituximab or uh, combination uh, chemotherapy free regimens like lenalidomide and rituximab. How, how do you talk to patients about uh, some of these uh, experimental therapies like bispecific antibodies where there may be greater toxicity? I think it's a really important concept. Again, because we view these patients as having a prolonged natural history, many of these folks will live decades with follicular lymphoma. We have to consider what is the short-term toxicity, but also the late toxicity of many of these therapies. Depending on the mechanism of action, that's usually how I formulate that discussion. With all of the immune therapies, there's gonna be some form of immune-mediated or uh, flu-like symptoms. And again, depending on patient's age, fitness level, uh, what they come into the treatment with in terms of prior cytopenias or prior toxicity with therapy, you do have to individualize that discussion. But generally with the bispecific, cytokine release syndrome is one of the most common toxicities, which usually manifests as fever, oftentimes chills. They may have low blood pressure, high heart rate. They may even have hypoxia requiring supplemental oxygen. And in rare but severe instances, they have to be hospitalized. They may even end up in the ICU requiring pressors uh, because it leads to a sort of capillary leak syndrome uh, where they can have, um, again, rare but significant toxicity. Fortunately, for the vast majority of patients, it's usually fever and chills. The onset happens after the first few doses. Um, it can be self-limited. Generally with antipyretics, you can weather the storm. Beyond cytokine release syndrome, cytopenias and risk of infection, that seems to be uh, toxicity that we see across all of these novel therapies and uh, chemotherapy. And so the rates of febrile neutropenia are generally what inform um, the discussions I have with patients in terms of what is the risk to them, because I don't think patients care too much about being neutropenic, but they do care about being at risk for infection, and particularly serious life-threatening infections. I think they worry about fatigue and how that's going to impact their quality of life, meaning will they still be able to function? I think they worry a lot about the schedule in terms of what does it mean for their normal routine? How often do they need to be with us? How likely are they going to end up hospitalized for toxicity? So that's generally how I formulate those discussions. What does the schedule look like? When is toxicity most likely to occur? When is life-threatening toxicity a problem? And how do we manage or monitor for these toxicities? Um, and again, it, it's going to vary across the agents uh, with some common threads. H how do you approach that discussion? Those are always uh, very complicated discussions uh, to go through, and I think you hit on the, the real highlights, uh, and that's really to try and prepare uh, patients and their families and caregivers uh, for all the eventualities that may happen and uh, prepare for the worst of those 
but uh, also uh, have your team uh, at the ready uh, to be able to address uh, those complications. Uh, and I find that uh, when that preparation goes in, uh, most patients uh, and their families are able to navigate that process of a clinical trial uh, with experimental therapies and uh, with advanced uh, therapies. How would you say most of your uh, patients uh, that are uh, going into a clinical trial, uh, how do they deal uh, with that discussion and how do they um, move forward from that discussion? So we generally try to terrify them with the consent form and then back them off the ledge with what's more likely to happen versus what are all the possible things that could happen. I think in general, it's important to inform patients about their risk and to at least take into account our unconscious bias and what their perceptions of the toxicity may be. So I think it's really important to have lengthy discussions about what is all of the possible risks, what are the most likely things to happen, and more importantly, what would we do if some of those toxicities emerge? And I think if you formulate it in that format, uh, generally we can address what their biggest concerns are, what are our most likely concerns, and where do we compromise and how do we move forward? I think, again, most patients care most about how is this going to impact their quality of life, their daily routine, and what will be the burden on family members who are often relied upon to get them to and from appointments. And so if you put it into that context, I, I think generally it's, it's better received. Well, that's really an outstanding approach. And I think that's exactly what patients and uh, their caregivers need to be able to approach uh, clinical trials uh, in an, a, a very informed way. Uh, particularly for those patients who have uh, early progression of disease, this is uh, a very serious health condition and clinical trials are something uh, that really should be part of that consideration. We're quite hopeful uh, that uh, many of the efforts uh, that uh, you have led and others have led in this space around uh, clinical trials will start to make an impact uh, for these patients who have early progression disease. And I think there are other efforts that are ongoing to be able to understand uh, in the setting of early progression of disease, can we develop other predictors? Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, there is a worldwide effort that I know you and I were both part of uh, to be able to identify clinical risk factors uh, for early progression disease. Uh, and in follicular lymphoma, and that hopefully should provide us with some data uh, that will be publicly available towards the end of this year, and then eventually lead us uh, toward an approach uh, that we're able to have those kinds of biological risk factors that you asked for that can help us to predict when a patient is first diagnosed, who are those uh, patients that are more likely to have this early progression of disease so that we can head it off at the pass with uh, early interventions. This has been an exciting discussion around uh, follicular lymphoma and look forward to our next podcast and chance to interact uh, and talk about uh, the, the next steps in, in therapies for patients uh, with follicular lymphoma. So thank you. Thanks. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL2. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.